All right. Thank you, Freddie, for the prayer. So he prayed that I would preach passionately. But let me start with a bit of a downer to start this sermon, right? So let me know if you disagree with this kind of pessimistic perspective. But do you think that it's unfair to consider life as just this constant battle to avoid suffering and ultimately it ends in death, right? We go to school and try to be educated for years, every day we break our backs working so hard so that we don't need to experience suffering. Or maybe more accurately, we suffer a little every day so that we don't have to suffer a lot. Because the seemingly unbearable prospect of lasting discomfort, embarrassment, or irrelevance is really what we're trying to avoid. But the reality is that we are all limited humans, and we can't completely avoid suffering. Sooner or later, and perhaps through no fault of our own, suffering and tragedy will come and visit us. We can only think of our brothers and sisters in Israel or in the Ukraine right now, where for them, life-altering, heartbreaking tragedy is literally right around the corner. And I pray that none of us would ever have to deal with anything that bad, but other than death and taxes, suffering is one of the only guarantees life offers. Just depends on what form, really. And when suffering does eventually visit us, because we tried so hard to avoid it, a normal response of the human heart is grief. Right? We say, woe is me, and even start blaming the world, blaming ourselves, questioning every life decision that we've made that got us to this point, right? haunted by these thoughts of what should I have done, and condemning ourselves, forgetting ourselves in this situation. And when the suffering becomes unbearable, without a foreseeable end, this grief could turn into a hardness of heart or even bitterness, whereby in order to cope with the suffering, we just resign to the fact that life is hard and unfair. Hence, we're better off not caring that much about anything or getting too attached to anybody because the more we care, the more painful it is when it is eventually taken away and we don't know when it's going to happen, nor will we be able to stop it in most cases. So it seems like, in this cynical perspective, we're stuck between two pretty unappealing options, aren't we? Either we anxiously try to avoid suffering while fending off the fear and paranoia that we might one day lose everything, or we harden ourselves and become stoic enough to not really care. But the Bible, friends, teaches us that there is actually another way that we Christians have a way to deal with the reality of suffering that is completely different from the world and actually is redeeming suffering. So this morning, we'll be continuing on our studies on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. And today, we'll be studying the second church that's mentioned, the church in Smyrna. And as Tazar mentioned last week, that this church is a special church, right? because this is one of the two churches that God doesn't actually give a rebuke to. And more uniquely, actually, that 
this church wasn't even commended by God, right? It doesn't say that they necessarily did anything right. But the weight, the uh, purpose of this letter is in how God instructs his people to respond to the various trials and tribulations that we will eventually face. So with that's in mind, uh, let's read together God's word to the church in Smyrna from Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. But do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let me just give you some background, brothers and sisters, on the church in Smyrna who is facing an impossibly hard situation. The church was facing persecution from people who are doing so in the name of Judaism, right? Those who feel like they're God's chosen people, but in verse 9 and 10 there, God affirms to them that these people aren't actually represent Him. Rather, God says that they are not God's people, but the synagogue of Satan. These guys were working for the enemy. And nonetheless, the persecution by these Jews caused a lot of trouble for them, right? They were pressured by the Jews. Most commentators believe that this involved a lot of threats of violence. And at the very least, this church was financially disadvantaged by the persecution because they were alienated from society. They couldn't really trade or do business, so their income was greatly compromised. And they also experienced a ton of slander. Right? Nasty rumors were spread by those who oppressed them. So point is, these guys were threatened on all sides, physically, financially, and their reputation and well-being were all being threatened if they did not compromise and continue to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps nowhere near to the same extent, maybe some of us can relate a little bit to the dilemmas the church in Smyrna was facing, right? Think of your workplace. If you worked with complete integrity and faithfulness to what the Bible teaches, will your career be stagnant? Can you still compete with your competitors? Or if you're really openly and publicly trying to live out your faith, will you receive backlash? Will there be anyone who rejects you and label you as radical, soksuchi, or straight up just reject you? I know a lot of people, I know some people in this very church who still cannot be open to their own families, that they are now following Jesus. So these threats, friends, are real for many of us today, and this letter is relevant for us too. But notice first, before I start going to the passage, right? In the face of these serious and scary threats, the Word of God does not promise some sort of miraculous breakthrough or freedom from their worldly sources of trouble. 
He doesn't promise just to make our problems go away, like what unfortunately many teachings that label themselves Christians have the audacity to promise us. Rather, in verse 10, God actually tells them to get ready because it's going to get a lot worse before it gets any better. But despite the real threats and worsening worldly conditions, God instructs them to not fear. Do not fear. And our passage points out three things about God that would help us get through that, even for the church in Jakarta, year 2023, how we cannot be afraid in the face of suffering, right? Our three points. Christians do not fear, do not need to fear when we face suffering, when we understand, one, God's story, two, God's purpose, and three, God's reward. God's story, God's purpose, God's reward. Let's get into it. Point one, we do not need to fear suffering when we understand God's story. Notice with me first here in verse 8, right? In order to encourage this church who was living under persecution, John reassures them by reminding them who Jesus really is. And it's written that the God who is speaking to them here is called the first and the last. In other words, the first thing that a community who is under pressure and is oppressed must remember is that he is the God who is sovereign over all things. He is the first. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. Not a single thing happens in the world. Not a single experience that we have happens accidentally. Every single detail in our lives comes from the divine initiative intended by the mind of God to come to pass. And at the same time, he's also the last. He is the God who will finish the good work that he started in the world. That means not a single thing that happens to us in our lives is meaningless. No matter how heavy or painful it might be, all of that will be used by God to sanctify us, to perfect us into the likeness of Christ because God is indeed working behind all things. As John Newton, the composer who wrote Amazing Grace, put it so well when he says, everything that God sends is necessary. There is nothing necessary that God withholds. Yet some of us who perhaps might experience deep grief and loss might hear this and think, how could God be so cruel? Is it necessary really for us to go through all of these things? Because indeed, the trials that we can face could be really considerable, both backbreaking and heartbreaking. And it can be really hard to accept that this is the will of the God who is advertised to be all loving and all good. However, God reassures this immediately with the words that follow. When he says that he is the almighty God, the first and the last, but he is also a Lord who died and came to life. This little sentence, friends, reminds us that it is not only us who has experienced suffering, but God himself became human and willingly suffered, much more than most of us will ever suffer. Betrayed by his friends, rejected by his own culture, physically tormented and finally brutally murdered by foreign invaders on the cross, life doesn't get much worse than that. 
But it was precisely because Jesus obeyed God and was willing to suffer unto death that Jesus become an acceptable substitute for the sins of humanities that causes all the suffering anyway. And because Jesus perfectly obeyed God, he was raised from the dead and is now seated at the highest place of glory as the king of creation. Friends, God reminds us through the Lord Jesus Christ that he is a God who willingly, self-sacrificially suffers for his people. And in fact, it is through this suffering that he is glorified. The word of God is very clear that the love and glory of God is most clearly seen when someone who doesn't deserve to suffer suffers for his friends. Not only his friends, but his enemies who hate him. There is no greater love than this, First John says. Hence indeed, the path of a child of God will always end in glory, but always getting there precisely through suffering. Therefore, since the very basic idea of being a Christian is following Jesus, which means Jesus' story is now our story, we ought not ever to see suffering as this punishment or cruelty from God, but rather a part of God's normal process of maturing us into Christ. But why I personally struggle so much to be okay with this is because I already have aspirations for my life apart from God, right? We all have our own ambitions, hopes, and plans, don't we? a preconceived idea about what a successful and a good life would look like, or how it would feel to be in the right with an all-loving God, and I doubt that any of us, for any of us, it involves a measure of suffering. But because of that, when God's plan, which again, always includes suffering, does not align to what we imagine it to be, we either doubt whether or not we've done enough to earn God's blessing, or more insidiously, we can even begin to question the character of God himself. Questioning whether or not he is truly good and he is truly for us. I myself, friends, have experienced this. If you guys knew me in 2018, I experienced by far the worst year of my life, where among other things, because my own stupid decisions, I got into a very bad traffic accident where I miraculously survived but I had a serious injury and had to get an operation where I had to relearn how to walk. And in this period, I was incredibly depressed. I thought I was like King Saul, if you know the story, whose kingdom has been taken away by God, hating myself, feeling so stupid and ashamed, even believing that from then on, life is just gonna be worse. And I just have to live in regret forever, right? It was a really, really dark place. And it's only in the last couple of years have I begun to realize and appreciate that this experience was a hard but absolutely necessary lesson for me from God. Even this painful experience was a saving act. And at that time, God really sat me down, well, because I broke my foot and I couldn't walk, so that I have to take a good, hard look at myself so that I would learn to hold on to his promises. 
Thank God he's healed me enough that I don't have to limp or walk with a cane now, but my agility and balance certainly wasn't what it once was. But more importantly, even though there are things that I've lost, from that moment on, I have never doubted that God is real and that he is watching over me. An invaluable experience to my spiritual growth. And friends, when we experience disappointment and pain, right, it is perfectly human for us to complain and even doubt God. However, in these low moments, we are all faced with a choice. Either spurn God and hide from Him in anger, or hold fast to His promises. And it is only if we choose the latter and double down on God's promises will we ever see that God does bring us back out of our low points and begin to see that going through these low points is actually part of what makes your story with Jesus beautiful. And it is indeed a difficult choice to make, especially when we are in that low point right now. And one thing that might help us make this decision to hold on to God's promises is an understanding of God's purpose in allowing us to go through suffering, okay, which is point two, God's purpose. We don't need to fear as Christians if we understand God's purpose. Might not look like it now, but when I was in high school, I joined a few sports teams and played pretty competitively. And our coach's philosophy is that though we might not be the most skilled and talented team, we will for sure be the fittest team, right? So the physical training that we had to go through was pretty intense, right? He was always pushing us to the limit. So let's say, right, we're training and we're out of breath and begging for mercy. I'm like, coach, no more. That's all I got. He's going to ask, are you cramping? No. Are you going to vomit? No. Are you going to pass out? No. So that's not all you've got. Keep going, right? And although it made us pretty good team, but at that time, I used to be so resentful of my coach because he didn't care about my suffering. He only cared about my athletic performance. And I feel like this is how God treats me sometimes. I felt like that at least. Like a coach or a boss who's only worried about what we can do or produce and not really our personal well-being and feelings, right? But in verse 9, God assures the church in Smyrna that he knows their tribulation and poverty. This is no mere cold, impersonal, academic knowledge, right? Our suffering is not just a piece of trivia for God. But He has knowledge of our struggle in an intimate way. Jesus Himself experienced all the shame and suffering that we endure, but even to a greater degree than we have experienced. Our Lord, friends, has deep empathy for what we are going through. Whenever I've done ministry to underprivileged communities, I always find astonishing how those who have been in poverty or struggle is somehow more willing to share and help those who are suffering compared to those who have everything and have always had privilege and probably have more money and resources than they do. Because it's going to be really hard for those who've not experienced poverty or suffering to really appreciate how painful the situation really is. But such 
is God's knowledge of our struggle. He's been through it all. He grieves when we are grieving. He sees every single tear that falls and he wants to wipe them away. And at the same time, God has an intimate knowledge that all our struggles have a purpose. While God has no joy in seeing us suffer, he also sees that good can come out as a result of suffering. And our, res- and our text hints at at least two possible goods, right? So the first good is that suffering that we go through has this ability to correct our perspective. God says in verse 9 there that while the church is poor materially, but in reality, they are rich. What God wants them to understand, and even for us too, is that whatever, though we may lack whatever material and worldly resources, we have something much greater that can never be taken away from us. A relationship with the King of Kings, the creator of heaven and earth himself. Because when we experience suffering, friends, what I find is that we will quickly realize what it is that we hold of preeminent value. Only when we don't have money will we see how much our heart loves riches. Only when a relationship doesn't work out will we realize how much we have depended on this person for our self-esteem and happiness. And only when we have failed will we really understand how success and achievement has become an idol to us. This is why the Bible constantly warns us to keep watch when we are rich, comfortable, and successful. To actually be weary when we're on top. Because it's so easy for us to be deceived when we're up there, giving us credit for our own wisdom, patting ourselves on the back for making ourselves successful, such that we become full and say, who is the Lord? Because we got it covered. We can take care of everything ourselves, and we don't need Him. So the good that comes out of the suffering you're experiencing for the Christian is to expose what it is that we've actually made an idol in our lives. What it is that has bound us and become our source of hope. What things did we put in God's place to give us only what God can give us? Because it is when we are in these low point, friends, does God usually show us that the idols that we've placed our hopes in are ultimately disappointing, flattering to deceive, without ever being able to deliver on what it promises to give. And it is in these low moments precisely do we start to seek and appreciate that in Jesus we have something much better. So it is through suffering do we really see the strength of our faith, our growth and holiness, and our closeness to God as the most important and valuable thing in our lives. Which is the second thing, the second good that can come out of suffering. In verse 10, God tells them that all they're going through is happening so that they may be tested. I don't know about you guys, but as a student, I strongly dislike testing. But now, having been married to a teacher, I see the value in testing, right? It's actually super important. It's supposed to show us how we have grown and how we can further grow. I love how G.I. Piker puts it when he says that spiritual maturity can never be measured, only tested. Let me say that again. 
spiritual maturity can never be measured, only tested. Meaning that there is no ruler that we can use to measure it, or there's no scale that we can climb on to tell us how much spiritual growth that we've experienced. We can't simply say that because we spent a couple of more hours reading the Bible and praying, or that our giving increases by 10% this month, that we've truly matured spiritually. Rather, our spiritual maturity will show when we are tested, when we have to go through pain, failure, and loneliness, and so on. Situations that will make it so tempting for us to come back to our idols. Situations where sin will seem so much easier and so pleasurable when we have to make the conscious decision to be faithful to God while sin seems most appealing. When we choose intentionally integrity over profit margin. When we choose to tearfully end relationship because they do not worship the same Lord to be willing, to be honest and admit our faults and confess though there will be consequences. Times like these, friends, are when we can really see that we are starting to be freed from our sin, that the Holy Spirit is working, the gospel is at work empowering us to overcome them and be victorious over them. This is why in verse 10, God tells them to not be afraid. Because the suffering and pressure that they are experiencing is not a punishment, but a privilege. An opportunity to draw near to Him, to really appreciate His goodness, and to really see how the Holy Spirit is present and working in us right now. Again, right? I know and I've experienced firsthand how incredibly difficult the tests that we have to pass in order to experience spiritual growth can be. Yet God promises to us that this will not be forever. Notice again, verse 10. The Spirit specifically says that their suffering will only be 10 days. Now, not all theologians agree what these 10 days exactly refer to, whether they're 10 literal days or figurative and so on. But we all can at least agree that it is communicating how God knows the exact amount of time that we have to suffer. God is counting the days, the hours, the minutes, the second of our trials, and what is for sure is that all of this is temporary. I personally find this to be an incredibly comforting truth because when I am in that low moment, it's so easy for me to lose hope and just fall into despair. Just want to stop and quit believing that things will never get better, that I will never heal. But if you understand that all of this has a purpose and that right now He is training us and growing us, that this is not a punishment but a temporary training regimen. And out of this, I'm going to be much stronger when I get through on the other side. It becomes a strong motivator for me to actually keep going. Because praise be to God, friends. Because God also promises that at the end of our efforts, if we do manage to endure to the end, there will be an incredible reward, much more precious and fulfilling than anything in this world that we can ever work towards. Which is point three. We do not need to fear suffering as Christians when we understand 
God's reward. Notice with me again, friends. God instructs us very clearly as to the extent to which we have to struggle. He says, be faithful unto death. In a situation where the church is experiencing suffering and oppression, God's prime imperative is to be faithful, to continue fighting and obey without any compromise the sin, to do not deny the Lord Jesus Christ to glorify His name. And He tells us to do this until the point of death, doing whatever we can, even risking death. Faithfulness is our only course of action. Because if we commit to this, friends, and we continue to be faithful, at the end of our battle, God promises that will give us the crown of life. So interestingly here in the Greek, it's not talking about the crowns that kings would wear, right? But it's talking about uh, these wreaths like you would see in the Olympics, right? That adorns the champions of a contest. So this verse wants us to internalize that while we are in this endeavor to follow God, we might lose even our physical lives, but we will win. Now this might sound contradictory, right? If we fight till death, how will we win life? But God reminds us here that there is a life more valuable and important than our current earthly lives, namely our eternal life that awaits us after death. In other words, whatever it is right now that we're holding to in life, no matter how precious it is, we must hold it loosely. Whether it is something joyous or saddening in this life, whatever we have, it will not be forever. The houses we build will crumble. The money we make will be spent. Our reputations will be forgotten. Our families and loved ones will pass away, but our relationship with the Lord endures forever. So perhaps, maybe some of us thus far realize that we are still struggling with sin and running to it in our moments of struggle. Sin is still our crutch at this moment. And we feel kind of discouraged about how far we have gone and how far we are from what we're supposed to do. And it's a rational fear. Because in verse 11, we are indeed warned that there will be a second death that awaits those who insist on rebelling against God. And the phrase a second death here is talking about how at the end of the ages, every single human who have ever existed, every single one of us here, will have to stand before the throne of God and will have to be accountable for what we have done in our lives. And for those who are sinful, for those who are not victorious and refuse to fight the good fight, there will be a second death. There will be this permanent expulsion from the presence of God and a banishment into a place where there is only weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there is the presence of God, but without any fellowship or love, only wrath, the lake of fire. And this is a frightening reality. And the reality is that none of us is actually worthy of escaping the second death. On our own, nobody can pass through the test of God. We have all failed to be faithful. We have all fallen at some point. 
Therefore, our hope can only be found in Christ, the first and the last, who has died for us and won. And he was raised from the dead that, death that we deserve. On the cross, Jesus experienced the destruction that we deserve. He bore all the punishment, all the consequence, so that we do not have to be punished anymore. Therefore, friends, when we suffer, if you are indeed in Christ, what we are suffering is no longer the judgment and punishment of God. This has been fully satisfied by Christ on the cross. But God's intention for all that we're going through is our sanctification so that we can grow into maturity and be like Christ. So in the end, we will win like Jesus. Charles Spurgeon put it so well when he says that because of the cross, no action of God is punitive. None of it is punishment. Every action of God is a saving action. So if you are still here fearing punishment, if you feel still bound by the struggles of life and the message that God is not out to get you actually is good news to you, God is inviting you right now to leave the idols that you have set your hopes on and allow Jesus to be victorious for you. If you do this, then the promises of God says that you will be victorious. And you can endure. And you can be sure that everything you've experienced up to this point is arranged by God to set you up for this very moment. That you would win precisely by surrendering to Christ. So would you, friends, right now? For those of us who have been Christians for a while and have already put our faith in Christ, yet right now are experiencing perhaps a struggle that you're not really prepared for. If you think that, let me end by telling you about the life of the leader of the church in Smyrna, maybe around 40 years after this text is written. His name was Polycarp, and he was believed to be a disciple of John himself who wrote this very letter. And at the end of his life, Polycarp, age, 40, age 86, he was threatened by the Roman authorities, and he was given a choice, either deny Christ or be set on fire. And this was his response. Eighty and six years I have served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? Then he said to his executioner, I bless you for deeming me worthy this day and this hour that I might be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord, Jesus Christ. At the end of his life, to his executioner, he says, you're gonna send me to Jesus? Dope, <laughs> I'm down. What a wonderful example of a person who really understands the purpose of suffering, who really has found his heart's greatest treasure in Christ, who really lived by what Paul has said, to live is for Christ and to die is gain. So, so though we might fear the suffering and pain that may come through the struggle of life, let each of us believers here pray for a heart like Polycarp.
a heart whose deepest desire is to walk in the heavenly city next to our Lord Jesus Christ. I need that heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we often forget the great and wonderful reward you have set before us. We have fallen in love with these vain things, these vain crowns and achievements, Lord, that ultimately will pass away and can never fulfill us. Father, help us to cling on your rugged cross. Help us lay down our crowns, Lord, and accept the suffering whatever it is that you may come to pass, knowing that it is your way of bringing us to glory. Help us rejoice though we are weeping and help us bring each other to rejoicing when we are weak. We know, Father, your spirit is within us and is working with us. I pray that we can always rest in your favor to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.